Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Kent Masterson-Brown discusses his book, Retreat from Gettysburg. Kent Brown, author of Retreat from Gettysburg, how long have you been interested in the Civil War? Oh, gee, Brian, all my life. Um, my first uh, acquaintance with the Civil War was as a, uh, a little boy. We, um, I had a grandmother and aunt and uncle who lived in Martinsburg, West Virginia. And coming from Kentucky, uh, we would take the train to Washington and then the old Baltimore and Ohio from Washington out to Harper's Ferry and to Martinsburg. And I got a, I'd get off the train and we'd settle in to the, the grandmother's little house and wake up the next morning and find myself at Antietam and uh, uh, then at Gettysburg. And um, it, just, um, it just grew from there. Um, I was totally smitten by sights of battlefields. And Growing up in the South, was, uh, was the perception <clears throat> of the war different than, than you have learned how it is in the North? Um, oh yeah, va vastly. And um, Kentucky, you know, Kentucky plays a, a, an, an odd role in the, in the war, a, a substantial one, but it's a, it's a schizophrenic kind of role. You got both sides represented in that a population. But as a kid in the early 50s, I can remember, um, just to, for instance, going to the University of Kentucky football games. I mean, it was in the Southeastern Conference, and they'd play Mississippi, Louisiana State University, Georgia. And um, at halftime, the band would gather in the end zone and spell out cats to a kind of souped-up Dixie. And um, here we are in a state that's considered neutral in the war. Central Kentucky certainly wasn't. It was very Confederate. And uh, evidence of that is that when that band would come out and play that, 38,000, which is all the stadium held at the time, would stand up and cheer for, I mean, until that band left the field. And this is, you know, the 1950s, all the way up until really that practice stopped in the, in the 1960s. But you could tell just the feelings in, in that state. And a lot of that came from the um, federal occupation of, of, of Kentucky during the, during the war. Uh, uh, even people who were fighting in the Union cause became ardent Democrats after the war because of those kind of issues. And so, yeah, Kentucky very much showed what the war meant to it as late as, you know, my, my youth. Do you remember how you were taught about the Civil War in school? <clears throat> Well, um, it, was, it was a totally balanced thing as, from my memory. Um, there was never any attempt to try to lift one over the other, I mean, and, and followed textbooks that most, most kids would have looked at. And um, teachers who uh, tried to 
presented in a, in a very balanced form, except for one. I do remember one, one, one wonderful teacher I had in junior high who, uh, whose, whose, whose name, name was O'Hare. And I think she thought maybe it might be close to O'Hara. So <laughs> it was kind of my gone with the wind uh, 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 introduction. Uh, she was uh, very enamored with the, uh, with the Confederate cause and Confederate personalities, but really it was a harmless thing. And um, generally speaking, it was all very balanced um, and fair. It's just that there was this current that you'd feel when you'd go to a ball game or a, a, a party or talk or whatever, and the subject came up, you could feel it. And to this day, there's still a lot of that. Now, your book is called Retreat from Gettysburg. Did, did you sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write a Gettysburg book and then start looking around for <laughs> things that hadn't been done? Or was there something about the retreat that intrigued you? Well, I'll give you a, a fun tale about me becoming interested in this. Years ago, I remember going to a, um, a, an old relic dealer living outside of Gettysburg, and I acquired then a company size first national battle flag that had been uh, used during the war. It had written on the tie end of the flag, captured at Monterey Gap, and with it was a little card uh, to a Sam Williamson in um, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, from a Joseph Leslie telling him that I'm sending you this flag for our reunion it was captured from a Georgia soldier named Watson on July 5th. And um, maybe you guys would enjoy uh, seeing it again. Well, it turns out these two were in the 18th Pennsylvania Cavalry, uh, fought at Monterey Gap, which of course is one of the engagements along the lines of retreat of Lee's. Where is it? Um, it's just about, um, oh, I guess uh, 14 miles west of Gettysburg on the road between Emmitsburg and Waynesboro as you're crossing the South Mountain Range. And as um, <clears throat> Richard Ewell's uh, uh, trains of quartermaster and subsistence stores and ambulances were crossing that, that mountain range through the gap, uh, uh, Judson Kilpatrick's division of Union Cavalry struck it and captured some 1,200 prisoners of war, uh, 300 ambulances and wagons, etc. And this was a flag that was seized then. And um, when, I, uh, when I got that thing, um, I began to ask myself, well, I wonder what Monterey Gap was all about. And that got me from to, to the next stage and the next stage and the next stage. And sooner, soon I began thinking, you know, there's probably a story that could be written about this retreat. I've never seen anything like it. And to be very honest, Brian, it was originally a, when I even conceived the idea of writing a book some 20 years ago. Uh, it was a book that would be more, oh, daring do, cavalry actions, uh, action-packed thing. It never, I never dreamed it would take the permutations it did and come out in the fashion it did. It, it, literally, the research led me to all that. Well, the, the popular <clears throat> wisdom about Gettysburg seems to be that after the battle, Lee headed south and that was it. Yeah. And, but, but your book suggests that there was a lot of fighting along the way. There was a tremendous amount of fighting along the way. Um, obviously, George Meade was terribly interested in finding out information about where his enemy was going. Uh, 
Uh, he knew he was breaking off combat um, after, uh, on July 4, started to rain, poured rain. Um, he knew he was breaking off combat, and he knew that all these trains were moving west. The problem George Meade faced, though, was that uh, he didn't know whether they were going west back to the mountains to fortify them, which many of his chief lieutenants said, believed that's what Lee was doing, or whether he was actually going to cross the South Mountain Range and head back across the Potomac River, which was 45 miles to his rear. And um, that presented a major dilemma to George Meade. Uh, so he uses all of his mobile units, cavalry units, to try to chase these trains and then try to send information back so he could get some ideas to where this enemy is going. That takes time. The problem George Meade faces is that his army is probably in worse shape than Lee's. And uh, it's in bad shape because he has had to rely upon a supply line from Baltimore that terminates at Westminster. And the reason he couldn't get a supply line any closer was that Lee had destroyed all the bridges on all the railroads between um, Hanover Junction and Harrisburg and between Hanover Junction and Gettysburg. And all through the battle, uh, George Meade had had uh, railroad engineers trying to reconnect, particularly the, Har the, the Hanover Junction and Gettysburg route so you could get a train into Gettysburg. Um, but when the battle evolved on July 1, and Meade had to come out of this preconceived Pipe Creek defense line, he rushed all of his commands forward to Gettysburg, some 30 miles, some 15 miles, some 20 miles ahead, and ordered all of their subsistence and quartermaster trains back to Westminster, which was the railhead. And so this battle was fought with no subsistence stores, no quartermaster stores, most of his men were ravenously hungry, um, short of ammunition. Um, his horses and mules were in really desperate shape. And he'd wind up losing 15,000 of them between Gettysburg and Frederick trying to chase Lee. So, I mean, he, you can see how fragile armies are when you don't keep them supplied regularly and adequately. And that's really one of the themes in this book. Well, one of the things you talk about is a lot of the, the foraging that, that Lee's people would do. They'd go out in the countryside and gather things. Did, did the Northern Army do the same thing? Oh, of course they did. They did it up here. In their um, own Absolutely. Where, Lee, where, where Meade was short of subsistence stores, uh, they would seize them. Now, they would, the government, they, those claims were paid better. <laughs> in fact, they were paid, uh, <laughs> if, for, for the most part, if you could, uh, if you could provide evidence that Meade actually took them. Um, but they were so short that um, the Army of the Potomac was impressing uh, mostly f fodder for animals. Um, that's the, that was the critical thing. A man can go about 10 days without having an adequate meal, but a horse or a mule cannot, and they'll collapse. Now, on the other hand, uh, Lee, uh, from, the, from what the research began to show me, his whole motive for getting into Pennsylvania was to forage his army. Uh, they were totally without. They were on the brink of collapse in Virginia, um, so much so that uh, he had to scatter all of his field artillery units just to try to find, find grazing lands for, for, the, for the horses and the mules. Lee has 40,000 horses and mules in this army, 75,000 combatants, 20,000-plus non-combatants, 
And you know, you think a horse or a mule has to have at least three pounds of oats a day. You, you should feed him 10. Uh, Lee has to wake up every morning knowing that he has about a three or four day window of opportunity to get uh, a decent amount of fodder in each of those 40,000 horses and mules. It's just a staggering thing to think about. And this is what drives an army. And um, <clears throat> the fact that he goes into Pennsylvania foraging, I mean, was a, was, a, was a classic. It's recognized by every military theorist of the age that that is a legitimate means of in, reason for invading enemy country. He wasn't going to seize Harrisburg? No, or? no. He had no intention. And the reason, the reason uh, uh, that, that it's clear is that Lee keeps that army always with these macadamized roads leading to the Valley Turnpike, which is also macadamized, to his rear throughout the entire time. Uh, he relies upon that line of supply all the way to Stanton, Virginia, and then by rail to Richmond for his communications with his government to receive convalescence back to the army uh, who are constantly moving up and down the Shenandoah Valley to his rear. Um, he's relying upon that line for reserve ordnance stores that he has ordered. Uh, they don't arrive until the 5th of July, almost literally in the nick of time for him to defeat a, a, a cavalry foray against his trains at Williamsport. But all of those things keep the army alive. All of these stores, those that Lee is not actually consuming, his men aren't consuming while in Pennsylvania, are being moved up and down the Shenandoah Valley and the Cumberland Valley to um, Winchester, his supply base in the valley. And, um, I mean, he's, he's going to collect 35,000 head of cattle down there by the time he gets across the Potomac, 30,000 head of sheep, 57 miles of trains. This guy isn't interested in taking Harrisburg. <laughs> you said there was nothing, he, he was out of supplies in Virginia. So totally. Why is it his, on his home ground he couldn't supply his army? They've been fighting in central Virginia for two years. And um, one has to just uh, begin, you, you see the, the, literally the size of what Lee confiscates and impresses in Pennsylvania. In the um, two weeks, one corps is there. And then the remaining two corps are there for a lesser period of time. But they, they managed to seize trains this big, uh, 57 miles of them, um, 35,000 head of cattle. Actually, it was almost 50,000. Some of these were left along the roadside. Some drowned trying to cross the Potomac River as they were being herded across. But he gets clear into Virginia, 35,000 head of cattle, 30,000 head of sheep, thousands of hogs. Now, if, if, if these two armies had campaigned in that region for two years, you can just imagine, there's nothing left. And that's the problem. And some of the photography we have of the, of the area in central Virginia uh, illustrates a barren wasteland, just a wasteland. And every officer, every soldier who wrote a letter to his sweetheart or an officer to his, to his war department in, the, in Lee's army commented on how difficult subsistence is now becoming and how this army, you know, can't continue without finding subsistence. And Lee has been on a mission to try to find it all through the spring and even detaching elements of his army to Suffolk to try to Longstreet. So that's why he's not at Chancellorsville. He's trying to forage for food. 
You mentioned macadamized roads, and I, I saw that referred to a couple times in your book. What kind of shape were they? I thought all roads were dirt roads no, then. No, no. A lot of these roads that Lee, all the roads Lee's relying upon are macadamized, meaning crushed rock. Um, give you an example of what one looked like, the Valley Turnpike is, was macadamized, ran from the Potomac River to Stanton. Um, it was crushed rock, um, 18 feet wide, usually had stone fences. They'd encourage stone fences on either side because then herdsmen could herd, flock, herd sheep and cattle and whatever up and down the valley without them wandering off the road. These roads were maintained under a, a legislative system that allowed um, uh, gatekeepers who agreed to perform the service to maintain five-mile stretches of the road, and they would collect tolls to do that. And same system in every state in the Union, frankly, at the time. So every five miles along the Valley Turnpike, you'd come to a toll house and a gate and the same is true of the Cumberland Valley Turnpike from the Potomac all the way to, uh, to Harrisburg. And the Cashtown Road from Chambersburg to Gettysburg was macadamized. The road from Gettysburg to Fairfield over Monterey was not, except when you reached the summit of Monterey. Then the Turnpike from Emmitsburg to Waynesboro, then down to Leitersburg and Hagerstown, and finally to Williamsport was macadamized. So, he has these sorts of roads in his rear, which are impervious to rains, uh, rough to ride over if you're in a, in a spring wagon, but it's better than knee-deep in mud, which some of these trains get mixed up in who are trying to take alternate routes. You have a story in here, and again, the popular wisdom is sort of that Lee told his people not to, not to steal from the locals. And you have a scene in here where um, there were... Uh, 30 or 40 soldiers were seizing every guinea, fowl, turkey, and chicken in one Pennsylvania farmyard. Lee happened to ride by as a frightened and angry woman who lived in a nearby farmhouse ran outside yelling for him to stop them. <clears throat> Lee merely touched the brim of his hat and said, Good morning, madam. He rode on down the road to the complete amusement of his men. So uh, where do you find a story like that? That was in um, the letters of two brothers who were in the 3rd South Carolina Infantry. Uh, Tally Simpson was his name. Um, it's a marvelous picture of, of Lee. And a picture of him that we, I think, have ignored for years. Lee is a very different man in my research than, and, and I come from a real kind of Lee tradition. I mean, I went to Washington and Lee University, and I was there yesterday, and uh, his his tomb is there, and I mean, he's worshipped there, and he has been by me for years, always, and to this day. Except you have this picture of Lee, of this lost cause Lee, of laying hands off, of making sure no one disturbs private property, this old lost cause tradition. But the truth of the matter is, is that Lee is a hard-nosed combat soldier. And um, if his army was hungry, he would feed it. Now, that's why he's up there. And for these soldiers, he would obviously, obviously was letting them seize proper, as long as they didn't hurt individuals. And there's very few recorded incidents of that. There are a few, but very, very few. Um, he still would allow them to purchase, acquire, however they did it, um, foods for themselves at the time. 
so as to save his own stores that he is seizing through quartermaster services and subsistence services so they could get back to Virginia and feed that army for the ensuing campaigns. But let the soldiers eat what they can find. That is clearly what's going on, and that's only one story. But that shows Lee himself looking at this, seeing they're taking guinea fowls and chickens, and the civilian is totally uh, distraught over this whole thing, and he just touches the brim of his hat and goes, good morning, ma'am. And every one of his soldiers are just laughing out loud, thinking this is just great stuff. Uh, but it shows you a different kind of Lee now than we always have been led to think about with that old General Order Number 72, where he said, you know, don't disturb private property. Why is Lee still revered to this day? Well, he is a uh, almost a larger-than-life figure. Um, uh, I think it's it's... It's his ability to stand up, to do what he did in the face of literally overwhelming odds. Odds he recognized himself. I found a letter once he, writ he had written to um, General William Mahone, or a, a reference uh, in a letter of General William Mahone's to a conference he had with Lee. This letter was 72 pages long, and he wrote it in a hotel room, Mahone did, uh, after the war in Washington. And he talked about a meeting he had with uh, Lee. Oh, this is during the retreat from Richmond to Appomattox. And um, he said, you know, I went into Lee's tent and we, uh, we conversed briefly. And he turned to me and he says, you know, uh, General, I never thought we could win this war militarily. And um, I mean, here's a man who, of course, this is, the, this is in the death throes of the army. But so much of his, uh, of his operations, this campaign included, illustrate a man who wants desperately to see this war over with, recognizing they cannot continue in the field, uh, matching what the Union's able to put into the field against them, trying to find a way to bring it to a conclusion, trying to keep his army alive at the same time, so as to do that. Um, all these things are tremendous odds. It's the same reason we revere Washington. Uh, Douglas Freeman, though, would say that what he loved about George Washington, he saw a sunrise with him, but with Lee, he saw a sunset. Same sort of odds, same sort of thing, but one was a victory and one was a defeat. Who is Clausewitz? He's a Prussian uh, officer from the Napoleonic Wars who uh, wrote a masterful treatise on uh, mostly military strategy and uh, as opposed to tactics. And um, uh, I like to use him because, one, the translation we have now from the German um, <clears throat> to the English was done at, at Princeton, and it was a, it's a magnificent translation. It's called On War. And it is his compiled theories of how war is conducted. Clausewitz doesn't invent these theories. These theories are ancient, and he simply kind of catalogs them, saying here's what the experiences of armies are like in this situation. And he, like uh, uh, Jomini, the French uh, theorist who wrote a book we titled War, uh, um, both of them discuss retreats after lost battles. 
except Clausewitz, the translation there is the clearest, to underst easiest to understand for, for anybody. And I like to use him. And uh, what's fascinating about it is you, you read him and then you watch what Lee does. And it's like Lee had memorized it, even though he probably never read it, but knew the theories. It wasn't studied at uh, West Point? No, not, Cla not Clausewitz. Jomini was well known in the old army. Um, and there were other theorists. Um, these theories were discussed. It's just the way in which Clausewitz articulated them uh, is so good for a reader. What is it that Clausewitz said, said about retreating that Lee appeared to have used? It, it, well, there are a whole lot of, 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 of things one would might consider minor, like um, uh, how you arrange your army. Uh, you never use uh, uh, divergent routes. If you're going to use parallel routes for the convenience of the march, that's okay. But you, uh, at least these things seem minor. They're very big oh, in, the, in the big picture. Um, the fact that a retreating army should move slowly, deliberately, and you would think it would be just the opposite. But you also think, now we're talking about a retreat after a lost battle. Uh, there's a decline in morale. Uh, always accompanies an army that's been defeated. And his idea was, as is Jomini's, that if you move fast, you start losing men by the army begins to disintegrate. And it's because of the mindset. If you move deliberately, the army is always collected, and you actually invite the enemy to attack you. And so a, a, a good retreat a retreat that has possibilities of turning defeat into victory is one that invites small-scale engagements all along the retreat route, that it uses terrain, geographical features that can aid in, um, in the retreating army, uh, 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 seizing initiative. But, the, but as Clausewitz says, the final result of this kind of a retreat is the, the commanding officer of the army must regain for his army the equilibrium between that army and the enemy. Uh, the regain, as the translators put it, the balance of power between the two. And that is precisely what happens in this retreat. And that's why, you know, when I look at Gettysburg um, and I say, you know, is this really a turning point? Um, it was certainly a massive tactical defeat for, for Lee. But is it a turning point in this big war going on? And that's where you almost have to come to the conclusion it was not because he regains the equilibrium between himself and his enemy by getting across the Potomac. All that he did, plus the army being intact. When, when Lee decided it's time to retreat and have to get out of here, mm -hmm. How did how was it communicated to his troops to to do it in a methodical way and not just hit the road? Well, uh, one thing for sure, um, Lee. Well, Lee met in his in A. P. Hill's tent, uh, literally behind the center of his lines. Um, they met for hours. Uh, James Longstreet, Richard Ewell, his other two corps commanders came in. Lee orally instructed them. Now, he issued written orders telling the order of retreat, who should follow, who should follow whom, who should be the rear guard, uh, how the uh, advance and the rear are to look with the being augmented with mounted troops, where the field artillery should move in relationship to the infantry. 
all of this, who's controlling what. And we've got those orders in the official records. Uh, but then there are countless other things that occur that, uh, that result from oral commands. And um, I'll tell you what, Lee comes over to me as a man who gives a lot of oral commands, has to. Um, but he's one who makes things, at least on this retreat, crystal clear. The, the, the officer who receives those orders knows he's either to comply with them to the letter or he's going to hear from this commander. This is a, this, again, Lee is a, almost a modern warrior. He, um, he can micromanage these officers. He, there's evidence of it, tremendous evidence of him just micromanaging every move they make. Lee never seems to sleep. He's in the saddle constantly uh, overseeing the movements of this army. So you've got a command staff of the army, the commander and his staff, who are overseeing it. You've got lieutenants, corps commanders, division commanders who are admonished exactly what this commander expects. And this army responds. It does exactly what this man demands they do. And you almost see this picture of this army being moved by the force of will of this commander. And again, a different Lee than the tradition I've always known. Uh, of this laid back, doesn't give, doesn't get too involved in everybody's business, gives these commands and lets his lieutenants do, uh, fill in the blanks, so to speak. You hear this a lot, and boy, it's not so. Uh, this, this man's on top of everything this army does. Did he know exactly where his, his army was headed when oh, they left Gettysburg? Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. He tells them, he tells them in writing where he's going. We're going to cross at Falling Waters. He cross orders the Potomac. to cross the Potomac. Uh, we'll cross at Williamsport, uh, where we cross to get in here. This is Williamsport, Maryland. Maryland. Right on the CNO Canal. Um, and uh, they all know exactly where this army is moving. Uh, even those commanding the huge trains that leave in advance of the army, he gives them explicit instructions as to where to take these things, how to get across the Potomac, where they're going to rendezvous with the rest of the army. If Lee's purpose being in the north was to get supplies, why did he fight at all? Well, of course, that's the huge question that everybody has, has always asked. Um, however, the, the foraging uh, issue, I think, helps explain why a battle evolved uh, more than I think we've seen before. And that is, uh, it's not A.P. Hill moving up from Cashtown just to smell out a fight. Uh, A.P. Hill moves an entire division forward to Gettysburg for purposes of protecting foraging trains. They're foraging east of the mountains. And um, uh, that's again what they're there for. And he Harry Heath's division is um, uh, outside of Gettysburg on July 1, accompanying trains that are foraging on the, uh, uh, on the roads uh, alongside the, that division of infantry. And that's what causes the, the first clash. And um, from there, it's really a matter of um, uh, subordinate commanders thinking they can easily brush this thing aside. And um, the battle then building, uh, 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 building up over the course of the morning, uh, Meade rushing 
for having forces way out in advance of his main lines and then rushing elements of his army forward as the day progresses. And then Lee doing the same thing. Each commander, one trying to protect the army that's being attacked, and Lee actually believing and his subordinates believing that they can score a, score a victory out here. And uh, any victory on northern soil, you know, is going to be important to a man like Lee, who, again, doesn't necessarily believe that this war is going to be won militarily, but if a major victory on northern soil could uh, 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 turn the balance of, of, uh, of, um, of the war effort, um, reduce it in the north and, and increase it uh, in the south. Uh, so you've got all these kind of things playing in this. And uh, when Lee actually comes on the battlefield on the afternoon of July 1, he actually believes he can score a major, major hit, and does. And then the question is, when the Union Army falls back onto the heights and is now being reinforced over the course of the night, uh, what does Lee do now? He has not gobbled them up. He has beaten them, beaten them badly. But now what do you do? And um, uh, then comes the big question once again, why do you attack on July 2nd? And right, when he saw the Union on high ground, couldn't yeah, he have just said, well, we got our supplies, let's we, get the yeah, road. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, he, he gives an excuse in his, um, in his after-action report. He says that the trains, I, my trains are so long, so massive, that I feared actually moving them out uh, on July 2nd and July 3rd. Yet he ultimately had to. Um, I, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to figure, really, other than Lee believes, the, as, as James Longstreet wrote, that like the, the hunt was up, I think I can, I can, I can hit a lick and tries. Uh, this is the type of man he is, the type of combat officer he is, and um, he came up short. You say <clears> in the book that his train was something like 17 miles long? No, they're, they're, they're actually multiple trains. They all together total 57 miles. Mm. I mean, this just shows how huge the effort was. The famous train that we hear about is John Imboden's, the one jo General John Imboden protected. That's the one that goes out the Cashtown Road. It is, consists of Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's uh, Corps trains and division trains and Jeb Stewart's division trains and these brigade trains as well. They were quartermaster, subsistence, ordnance, and ambulance trains, all in, in order by division. And that was 17 miles long, that train. Now remember, they had not been foraging as long as Dick Ewell. Dick Ewell had been up there with his corps for two weeks ahead of these people. On the Fairfield Road is Dick Ewell's trains, and he has a reserve train that he was collecting stores for, for the Army itself. That was parked eight miles in Lee's rear. That thing was 20 miles long. And uh, once that train cleared Fairfield on the road toward Monterey, then each of Ewell's division trains follow it. And each one of those are seven miles long. So you've got 40 miles of trains on the Fairfield Road. And you can actually time them from diarists, showing how long it took to get one train past a given point. When the nose of that train reaches Hagerstown, the rear of it is still coming out of Gettysburg. Wow. Just enormous amount of stores. Well, by a train, you, is it wagon train? One, do they go single file? Single file. Single file. How fast did they move? Well, um, 
for instance, uh, the Imboden's train uh, was timed by people. They claimed it would take 36 hours to pass any given point. There is a good, a good example. That's 17 miles. So you can see how long a 40-mile-long train would, uh, would take. Wouldn't that make them enormously vulnerable to attack? Of course. Of and course. you can't defend a 40-mile-long train. Hence, this is what Lee said in his after-action report. It was his great fear was um, those trains. They're so big. And that was the first glimpse I got when I was doing this research of, you know, how big are these things? I mean, I, I had no idea. And, uh, but then yeah, I started going after one diary after another, one report after another, and you could begin to start time them. And then there were some, some people who actually witnessed them to give you an idea of their length. And uh, there were at least four different diarists who could record Ewell's trains being 40 miles long. I mean, and how long they would take to pass each, each point. Uh, the reserve train took, um, it started somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 o'clock in the morning and didn't clear Fairfield until 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So there's, a, there's an example of just how big that thing was. Well, how long did it take me to figure out that Lee was not fortifying the mountains and, and did he take after him then? Oh, absolutely he did. Um, now, he has cavalry units moving on the flanks, trying to reach the flanks of those trains. Some do. Some actually attack them, like at Monterey. Uh, then they're attacked again at Hagerstown on the 6th of July and Williamsport, but all of those attacks are repulsed. Um, uh, Meade actually pushes one of his corps all the way through Fairfield behind Lee's retreating army, not to provoke a general engagement back there, but for John Sedgwick to tell George Meade what Lee's doing. Is he fortifying those mountains? And on the evening of the, of the 5th of July, John Sedgwick had to tell his commander, it appears as though they're fortifying the mountains. Meade countermands all the orders of the army to move toward Frederick. Um, he waits until the next morning. The next morning is dense fog. This is the 6th of July. And he does not find out until a, a cavalry unit moves up the Maria Furnace Road toward Monterey uh, sometime around mid-afternoon of July 6th and finds that the um, where they had seen all the campfires, even in the driving rain, they would be lighted. Uh, where they had seen those the night before, the army had left. So riders go back out to George Meade and they say he is now moving into the Cumberland Valley. L Meade reissues the orders he had countermanded 30 hours before and the army now moves toward Frederick with the idea of moving through the next available pass which is Turner's Pass and Fox's Gap and Crampton's Gap to confront Lee outside of Williamsport. And believe me, Meade's army moves with just enormous speed. But these men still haven't been fed. None of them have been fed. This is now the 6th of July. And this is where he's going to start seeing horses and mules breaking down. He's going to lose 15,000 of them trying to get there. And uh, some of his field artillery can't even be pulled across the mountains. He still didn't have his supplies? No, see, they're all still in Westminster. And he couldn't move that base. His, his fear was, if I move the base to Gettysburg thinking Lee's fortifying the mountains, okay, I might get my army fed, but what if I'm wrong and Lee is actually moving down? It's going to take now yet another week because they're going to have to ship all the material back, move them across Baltimore 
to the B&O Railroad and then ship them to Frederick. Uh, and he could not afford it. He couldn't afford to lose that kind of time or his army would go down. How was Lee able to forage and get, have so, uh, so abundant supplies? And so he was carrying it with him. He was carrying his, his supplies with him that he had, made, had the intention of getting in Pennsylvania. That was his whole mission. That wasn't George Meade's mission. George Meade's mission was to protect the capital, you know, do all those kind of good things. But as a defensive role, Lee was out there gobbling up everything he could find. And his men were foraging, as you read, on their own. Uh, so here's an army that is not necessarily better fed than George Meade's, but it has fodder and it has subsistence stores with it. And um, even the newspaper men who were following George Meade's army complained that here we are in our own country, yet Lee is the one falling back on his own base. We are not. We don't have one. Did See, it's being shifted. Were there friendly uh, local residents around Gettysburg, friendly to the South, who helped them out? You mean Lee? Lee, yeah. No, I mean, clearly not. Um, he had to uh, confiscate what he, what he got, hand him a... And it was a regular, he, he issued orders on how to do this to each quartermaster and to each subsistence officer. Go up to a farm, say, this is what you want, pay them the market price. In Confederate In money? Confederate script. I mean, and, you know, we all s snicker at that. But then, I mean, if the Confederate government ultimately won this thing or was ultimately recognized, it'd be worth something. But it was all they had. And uh, so they were paid, unless they put up a resistance, and then it was seized. Or they tried to hide it. And Lee said, take it. And, uh, but what's, what's just phenomenal is that, oh, oh back into the mid-90s, while I was working on the research on this thing, I, uh, I got a telephone call from uh, the curator at the Museum of the Confederacy in Richmond. And he says, Kent, you know, you might have something here of interest to you. And I said, what is it? And he said, they're just some quartermaster records. And he says, you know, they've never been opened. And um, that really, you know, keyed my interest, so I went over there and tied up in red strings, never been untied since 1896 when they were given to the museum when it was established. We opened them up and here are these enormous grids with the article that Lee wants across the top. Uh, down this left-hand side were the property owners they were taken from. On the right-hand side was the amount of money paid, and uh, in these, all these boxes were the numbers of each article they got from each property owner. And these were all from James Longstreet's Corps, some from A.P. Hills, the only ones known to exist. But they show a systematic effort of stating exactly what's needed in this army to keep it going, um, and showing how much each quartermaster of each regiment, of each brigade, of each division, of the corps is getting. So you could chronicle just how the, the effort that's going on on either side of this army. Even while the battle's raging, quartermasters are out there seizing property. It's amazing. How much time did you spend in dusty old libraries with documents <laughs> like that? <laughs> I love dusty old libraries. I, uh, Tons, even on my even on a family trips. Uh, my my wife's a, a great sport about all this. She loves history too. Um, we would go into repositories and you know while we're on a trip, and um, uh, when I'm on a law trip, I 
find a repository and, and go over to it, spend some time. And I mean, it was just countless hours. And um, some of them were fruitful, some of them not. And then so many people got to know what I was after that I would get calls periodically, and this was one of them. And I, as I told uh, John Kosky, who runs the, he's the curator at the museum, as I've told him, and I've said in the acknowledgments of the book, it was just totally decisive, th that find. And um, never been, you know, quartermaster records seem boring. You know, who wants to it's look a, at how many yeah. shoes an army gets? <laughs> but when you, when you look at it in context of a campaign like this, it becomes a very powerful um, instrument to, to examine. Speaking of um, the research for this book, you, you uh, thank the baseball, National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. What did you <laughs> glean from the Baseball Hall of Fame about this? A, um, interesting, what they had there uh, was a painting of Abner Doubleday. But Abner Doubleday is a very young officer. And um, uh, the painting was done of Doubleday up at the uh, site of a Union battery overlooking the Potomac River at Williamsport. And I actually thought of using the illustration in the book. Um, it's a glorious little painting. But I never, it, it, we just, we, we, we hit the number I felt and the press felt we could use and this one just didn't make the cut. But it was a, uh, it was a painting showing Union troops moving from Williamsport across the Potomac, wading the Potomac at the Ford uh, to go into then Virginia, now West Virginia. And it's one of the greatest illustrations of that Ford I have ever seen. And uh, done in 1861, and it shows 1861 troops. But here is clearly the CNO Canal, the pivot bridge over the CNO Canal, down to the Ford. Um, you can see all the scenes. You can see Lemons Ferry and the house Maidstone on the Potomac across where the ferry boat operator lived, Robert Lemon. And all these sites were critical to Lee's retreat because that, he uses that same ferry, uh, the flats on that ferry where this army is crossing. And by looking at this painting, you can see exactly where the Ford was. And um, so it was a very interesting, very, very interesting illustration. And of course, Doubleday, of course, the founder of baseball, they say. Uh, you have a lot of pictures in the book, and a few of them are listed as um, never before published. Never before published. Do you have a personal collection of Civil War pictures? No. I, I, what I did over the years, I collected the, uh, these illustrations. Uh, some of them are from private collections. Um, some I just purchased, uh, the, the positive prints. One of them I, that I acquired was uh, years ago. It was an old... Um, print made about 1880 of the site of Falling Waters. Now that's a never before seen image of William Tipton uh, showing the site where the pontoon bridge was that Lee's, most of Lee's army crossed. It's never been seen before. It's a magnificent picture done in the winter so you can see all the dwellings on the West Virginia shore. Um, th there's an illustration of George Emack uh, who, whose little cavalry company, two companies actually defended all of Kilpatrick's division up at, uh, at Monterey and General William Tidwell in, in Virginia f had done some work on EMAC, uh, the Confederate Secret Service and uh, EMAC played a minor role in that and he happened to have that picture and I called him up and 
actually get, trying to get information from him, and he said, well, you know, I have a portrait of, uh, of George Emack. It's never been seen before. And um, then pictures of the, uh, the bottom land at, at Williamsport where, you know, 6,000 of Lee's train, wagon train, wagons were parked along that bottom land. That's never been seen before as it would have looked right after the war. Um, there's some fascinating uh, images there, I think. Can you explain how a pontoon bridge works? Yes. Um, I'll tell you, explain how Lee's, the pontoon bridge at Falling Waters, worked. Um, there were 26 pontoons. These are like huge boats, um, like a big gondola, and they'd float. And um, these were, tra they traveled on wagons that were built to hold them. So you literally 26 wagons hauling each one a pontoon. And then there were wagons that, that carried the trestle work between the pontoons that actually held the pontoons together and formed the bridge. And um, when Lee invaded uh, Pennsylvania, he put a pontoon bridge that he had just gotten into the Army. He had ordered it in April, and uh, the, uh, the uh, engineer department had just sent it to him. And as the end, there was an engineer team that would work to assemble this and protect it. And uh, they would put one pontoon in the water after another, attach those pontoons with trestle work. And then as a minute they got all 26 of them in the, in the river, uh, they would then anchor them with huge boxes literally filled with rocks on chains or ropes and that would keep the bridge from moving with the current. And then you would lay across the top the boarding, and there would be your pontoon bridge. And you could literally disassemble this and take elements of it and keep it on the shore so that you couldn't be attacked, which is what they did. And um, uh, they were ultimately attacked on the, the, the night of wee hours of July 4, and that bridge was partly burned by Union cavalry. So when Lee gets down to the Potomac, uh, it's been raining for 10 days. The Potomac is now at 13 feet deep uh, where they forded it to get into Maryland and Pennsylvania. It's now swollen. No pontoon bridge and his army is seemingly trapped uh, north of the Potomac. It's a dramatic moment. And um, Lee actually takes the remnants of that pontoon bridge, has his engineers in 62 hours reconstruct 26 pontoons, all the trestle work from just dismantling barns and buildings and reconnects an 800-foot span across the Potomac River. It's the most amazing engineering feat I can imagine. Before we run out of time, can I ask you a little bit about yourself? You, sure. you mentioned you're an attorney, you do lawyering work. What yeah. kind of attorney are you? Most of the work I do is um, uh, civil rights work, um, constitutional work. Uh, most of the clientele I've had over the years are healthcare providers, and um, not all, but some, uh, a good portion. And uh, as the best way to explain it is that uh, I sue governments over things they do <laughs> that uh, some individuals feel they shouldn't do. And um, I love constitutional law. It's part of my love of history, frankly. Where'd you go to law school? Washington and Lee University, and. Lexington, Virginia. And undergraduate school? Center College in Kentucky. Little school of 750 kids who in 1921 now, 
their football team defeated Harvard and Cambridge six to nothing to become the national football champ. <laughs> and they'll never let you forget it. <laughs> and you are also editor of something called The Civil War in Kentucky. The, the, I was the editor of a book called The Civil War in Kentucky, yes. Well, what can you tell us about, uh, what's an interesting fact about the Civil War in Kentucky that we might not know about? Um, that uh, it contributed some 80,000 troops to the Union cause, some 30 plus thousand to the Confederate cause that we can account for. That uh, although it declared itself neutral in May 1861, um, by September its legislature was entirely in the hands of pro-Union forces. Uh, actually made it a felony to be a Confederate officer in Kentucky. Uh, elected an entire delegation to Congress that was, that was pro-Union in 1861. It was a Union state, even though central Kentucky and far western Kentucky had tremendous Confederate support. John Hunt Morgan came from there, his men came from there, John Breckinridge, General Preston, tremendous number of, Albert Sidney Johnston, who died at Shiloh as a Kentuckian. Um, it contributed tremendous personalities to the war, um, although from the winter of 1862 until the end of the war when Confederates left the state because of Grant's operations up and down the Cumberland and Tennessee rivers and the Mississippi, uh, Kentucky was entirely in Union hands during the war, save for a brief invasion in 1862 and other incursions, raids in, in and out of Kentucky. But um, Kentucky still to this day is a kind of schizophrenic about all this. Uh, um, uh, it's a fun place. When, when Lee was heading south, did he have northern prisoners of war with him? Had 4,000 of them, yes, which adds to his difficulty. Wouldn't it have been just as easy to let him go so he didn't have to haul well, them Well, he wanted to parole them. He actually sent messages across to George Meade offering uh, the cartel to uh, parole. You parole mine, I'll parole yours. And um, the War Department, though, had issued strict orders on the eve of this campaign. They wouldn't accept any more paroles. So with, with, with it in mind that Lee could never get his back, um, he made the determination to shut off any attempts to parole these guys, and we'll take them with us. And of course, that forms one of the, one of the more interesting sub-episodes of this whole story is following those poor devils all the way down to Stanton, Virginia on foot 200 miles and then on trains uh, to Richmond to prisons. And some, some of that entourage were civilians from the Gettysburg area and Valley area, Cumberland Valley area, who had gotten in either behind Confederate lines and tried to get out and were seized or had done something that uh, Lee's Provo Marshal felt was they shouldn't have done and they herded him south of the rest of them. So it was, it, it, that's an interesting story all itself. How many of Lee's wounded did he take with him and how many did he leave We back can account in for them. Um, the records at Stanton General Hospital in the Shenandoah Valley showed nearly 9,000 getting out of Gettysburg 200 miles to Stanton, Virginia. Um, of that uh, near, nearly 9,000, I can say pretty safely that uh, if they got that far, uh, pretty nearly 90% of them would survive. Many to come back into the ranks, which is another example of, of why Lee keeps this line of supply in his rear. He has a means to evacuate his sick and wounded, and he had a lot of sick, too. There were nearly 5,000 just sick soldiers. 
if he can have a means to evacuate them, to get them to recover, he can get them back. And his admonition was to get them better and then send them back into the army. And so a, only a sophisticated medical evacuation system could do it. And he had one in his rear. It had been in place since 1861. Was the, was the Union Army in hot pursuit? And when they got to the Potomac and realized Lee was across, did they kind of say, oh, well, he got away? Well, they were in hot pursuit. And um, actually, uh, on the eve of Lee beginning the movement across the Potomac, uh, were confronting him two miles away, had set up lines two miles away. The problem with it is, is that they couldn't have assaulted, although Meade actually called a council of war to determine whether or not his lieutenants wanted to. It's because the rains made the area between Lee's defense lines, which were 50 feet higher than where Meade's army was, you'd have to assault up a long ridge that was broken up with heavy field artillery up there. But you'd also have to assault across land that was literally underwater. Marsh Run runs between uh, Lee's defense lines and George Meade's, and the assault would have had to take these poor devils waist and shoulder deep through mud and water to get there. So it's just not feasible. This was not feasible. Meade gets there in time, but there's little he can do. You say in the book that the newspapers in Richmond blamed Lee for the loss at Gettysburg. There were. There was a lot of blame of Lee for this. Uh, they felt some of his decisions at Gettysburg were not comprehensible, just like we talked about before. These are contemporaries. However, in the end, um, they refer to him, these tremendous critics keep referring to him as our great captain. So they criticize him for what he did there tactically. But then they also say, you know, it appears as though he has more beef on the hoof now than we've ever seen in this army. So they, they, they can see the benefits of the invasion that Lee gets across, but they somewhat castigate him for some decision-making. Yet, remember, not one of those reporters was allowed anywhere near that army. During the Gettysburg, the battles, Lee would never have him near headquarters. He would never share after-action reports with him. These guys were getting their information from wounded who were being taken across the Potomac River. One newspaper reporter said, I know as much about this army. This is a Richmond paper. I know as much about this army as if it were in the middle of Africa. I mean, that just shows you how, what a blackout there always was around Lee, uh, Lee's headquarters. He would not tolerate anyone near him. It took you how long to write this book? Well, it took nearly 20 years of research and writing. And, of course, I'm not a full-time professional historian. I have to do this in the midst of earning a living, doing other things. But uh, 20 years, and it took about four and a half years to actually compose it. Do you have another Civil War book in you? I have three going now. Uh, one a reminiscence of one of Morgan's men from Kentucky. I'm doing a small work on um, the Lincolns in Kentucky. The National Park Service asked me to do a title exam on one of the Lincoln boyhood home in Knob Creek. And it's a story of all the legal difficulties of Abraham's father and how he lost every piece of land he ever had in Kentucky. It's an interesting little tome. And then I'm doing a, another major work on the Antietam campaign, the first invasion of, uh, of Maryland. Well, we'll have to keep an eye out for those. This is the book we've been talking about, Retreat from Gettysburg. Kent Brown, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.